Welcome back, everybody. Episode two of Comfort Breeze Complacency. Uh, before I had any other athletes and uh, other people that I have lined up, I wanted to have a special guest on, someone who's helped me become the adventurer, the athlete, the person I am today, uh, my father, Gary Pelletier. So just want to welcome my dad to the podcast. Well, thank you, Nick, for having me. I feel privileged. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, a lot I've learned from you over the years, and uh, I just was hoping that you'd be able to get into your story of kind of what made you the man you are, and I know you've done so many different things, and uh, maybe just start with your life and where you grew up, and you have a huge family, so your siblings and all that. And Well, I grew up in northern Maine. Uh, I have uh, seven brothers and sisters four sisters, three brothers. Um, I was the second oldest of the family, siblings. And um, life in northern Maine was um, pretty pretty tough. It was, uh, you had to be a real aggressive and hard worker to, to survive uh, and make it in northern Maine. So, all of us kids learned uh, we needed to uh, be hardworking and we needed to um, just take hold of our lives because no one was going to give us anything. So we uh, learned to survive by just doing. And I've always... And that's been my model, to do, 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 even if it's not perfect, just to start. And then along the way, you'll gain knowledge and you'll improve on all your your activities and your things that you uh, choose to do in your lifetime. So Northern Maine was just a great experience, a, a good place to grow up. As a young kid, you, because uh, you're the second oldest, there was quite a bit of gap in between. Like the youngest sibling, did you kind of take a, like a not a father role, but a helping with raising the younger kids? Well, there was always that the older kids. Northern Maine is primary Catholic, and there's all big Catholic families. Everybody had big families. Like 10 kids was not uncommon in a family. And usually the older ones helped out taking care of the younger children. That's just how it was. It's just part of the family uh, core. So I did take a lot of responsibility in helping my brothers and sisters and... um I take responsibility seriously. I think um, it's uh, a quality that needs to be uh, instilled in all of us. Like we just can't feel entitled to life. We just need to be responsible for our actions and uh, people around us, our loved ones. So I've always been... A real responsible person, and that's where I gained my confidence from just trying to be uh, helpful 
I am responsible. Yeah. So in northern Maine, you guys were in Maine for a while, then Connecticut, right? Uh, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and then moved when I was two years old up to northern Maine, called an area called Dago, Maine. That's where my dad had the farm that he grew up on. And we stayed there for a couple of years, and then we moved into a town called Fort Kent, which is a community town of about 5,000. And there is where I grew up. I went I went to um, Catholic school there in Fort Kent and went to high school there, grammar school and high school there. And then I moved out after, um, well, probably I was probably 25 when I moved away from Fort Kent area, area to in, southern Maine. And Fort Kent's where your dad had the body shop, right? You worked with him in the body shop yes. for a while? Yes. My dad was very mechanically inclined, and he uh, had a body shop uh, and repaired cars. So he um, taught me to trade. We always were hanging around the garage, so he had us working in there, sanding on cars and fixing cars. And, and uh, of course, he got free labor from us, so he was happy to have us around and teach us. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things that is like awesome having you as a dad is no matter what there might be a problem with if it's some in the house or your car or something you seem to always know how to fix it and I guess that's just from all the experience and different things you've done throughout your life and like you always even when my truck got hit back in the day you know how to bang it out and paint it and spray it and do all that stuff yeah and I I got that mechanical um, inclination and ability Strictly from my dad, he was uh, he, he was a great mechanic and a great auto body man, and he made do uh, with simple things. He always could come across and fix them and make do with it because you know money was hard to come by, so you had to repair what you had and made it last. And uh, he taught me. Um, a lot about being inventive and doing simple things and making simple things functional. So I um, carried that through my life, and um, to this day I'm still conservative. I'd rather fix something than buy something new. I know I'm at a stage right now that I could buy what I want and wouldn't need everything new, but... I get a satisfaction out of fixing stuff and making things do and work. Yeah. I remember at uh, in Fort Kent, we visited uh, Pape is what I call him, your dad. We visited him, and he'd always rip around on his four, four-wheeler. Oh, uh, yeah. And he had that little hill right by his, uh, up to his house there. And we went up it one day after ripping around on the four-wheeler, and the, I was in the front, you were in the back, and the whole thing tipped up and we were looking at the sky the thing about fell backwards on us <laughs> oh yeah there's there's one thing about uh my life there was plenty of excitement in it. just because of the fact that i like to do things right I didn't like to stay still so the more you do the more possibility there is 
for things to go a little haywire. And safety is always an issue. So we were borderline on a lot of our adventures and risky. Yeah. What was it like uh, growing up on the farm? I know you said you had to do all the things that you do on the farm. and Well, that the farm taught me responsibility. You have chores on the farm. Everybody in the family has to help out. You cannot run a farm without having any help or any labor. So the children would have chores. Everyone had chores to do. If it wasn't feeding the animals, there was milking the cow, and there was fixing things, and there was gardening, and there was um, there was never anything. It, if you ever said you were bored and didn't have anything to do, it was not on a farm because there are endless things to do on a farm to make it functional and and to be self-sufficient. So did everybody do the same jobs, or some would have to get the eggs, some would milk cows, some would get potatoes? Some, we had our, our own jobs to do a lot of times, and we had to learn to cover for our brothers and sisters also, because if they weren't around, or there's something special going on for them, and they weren't able to do it, someone had to do it. So we would learn each other's, uh, chores and be uh, responsible that just take care of them. What was it like with that many siblings? Like where, when you were when you were in the house, were there all of them in the house at one point, or were you out of the house by the time the youngest came through? No, at one time um, you had all eight in there. All eight were in the, in the house, and that's chaotic. It's really chaotic. There's a lot of sibling rivalry, and it was all chaos. There was always chaos in a family of eight uh, siblings. So I remember the, you would say, uh, with my Uncle Bunny, who's your older sibling, who's gone now, mm-hmm. rest in peace, but you would uh, have his... Uh, he would You would have a truck, and he would have a tr- toy truck. I remember you were saying that you'd take his down and play with his so if you broke it then yours would still be new and oh yeah i was i was a little weasel back in the day and uh i i, I would i was a little bit of a boss too right i'd boss my siblings around even my older brother i'd boss them around right but i did use his toys and my brothers and sisters' toys and had mine hidden away like a Scrooge, right? So it's not um, something I'm proud of, but it was me just trying to survive and keep my <laughs> my toys clean and neat and not spoiled. What... um. What was it like at mealtime? Did you guys always have enough food for everybody? or did When you... we were living on the farm, there was always plenty of food, right? Always. There was no issue. When we moved into town, that's and dad started working in the body shop. And, and to start off with, things were tight. You know, meals were... were you didn't have any extras and you didn't have any of the fine dining or anything like that. It was always um, 
trying to save, save, save to get enough to to survive. Actually, pay for rent and pay for uh, um, food and whatever. So, yeah, it was tough when we first moved into town. But did we, you have a like? Did you like Fort Kent or the farm life better? I actually now when I'm looking back, I like farm life better. Yeah. Was there like a favorite and least favorite chore or thing you had to do? I love being outdoors. I love uh, plowing in the fields. I loved we had uh, two horses and we'd cut firewood during the wintertime and they would skid the, the trees out of the woods. And I was always impressed, impressed with um, their strength and how much they gave. You know, when you asked them to pull and, and they didn't hesitate. So I was always impressed with the horses on the farm and have a deep respect for them. Um, you look back in, in history and horses really, really helped out humanity progress. So, um, yeah, I learned a lot on the farm and uh, I was comfortable on the farm. I didn't, my, my, you know, hard work didn't matter to me. You know, when the chores were done, I felt satisfied. And Yeah, I can see that through everything you do. You're always even somebody when you're not doing something, you're looking for something to do. But I think uh, you you were in the Boy Scouts as well, right? You were saying you like yes. to be outside. When, so. when we moved into town and I joined the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts, I had to have something to do all the time. So that was a great experience because, again, that was outside in nature. And, and we just happened to be fortunate to have a great scout leader and uh, would take us on a lot of canoeing adventures, and uh, and then later on there was hunting adventures, and uh, it just grew and became a um, a part of me. It's like I had to be outdoors. Yeah, like being outdoors. Learned a lot of skills. What did you learn mainly from Boy Scouts? Oh, from Boy Scouts you learned camping outdoors, uh, you know, and all about fire and cooking and surviving in the wild. And then you learned about winter camping and surviving in the, in the wintertime. And then you learned about canoeing uh, on the rivers and the safety and, and the respect for the current and how strong that could be. And you... you I just had an appreciation by um, having the opportunity to be in scouting and have the scout masters that we did have and the opportunities. It gave me a deep respect for nature because nature, nature, it was here before a long time before we were. And the thing about nature and its beauty and, and all its beauty, it does not care whether a human being survives in its realm or not. You could drown in its waters. You could freeze on its mountains. You could... It just does not care about human existence or survival within it. So 
you have to respect that because it's been around and it's a part of our our lives it seduces us to to swim in its waters and its oceans and climb its mountains to conquer things yeah so and the human being loves its realm and its beauty but nature is to be respected because it does not care whether we survive in it or not so i've learned to respect it do you think uh being able to be comfortable there and know like the give and take of nature and the elements and feeling comfortable i think that gave you a lot of confidence through other aspects of your life oh it it was the, the main force that gave me confidence uh knowing that i could survive in its realm right the more you learn about nature the better your chances are of surviving in it so you need to have nature in your life to complete a happy life i feel nature has to be a part of it it's just part of your being you can have solitude and quietness and contentment just walking in the forest and it's serene and uh, surreal and it's calm and it's always been a common effect on me mm. so to have a life without nature or the a possibility of being in nature to me would seem very very dull yeah do you feel like that's missing in society with youth today because i know even just thinking with my friends like none of us went through boy scouts a lot of us do like the outdoors because their parents as well introduce them to outdoor mm-hmm. sports activities being active in the forest or skiing or playing sports outside and all that but i like i don't know if anybody really does boy scouts or stuff especially if you grew up in a city like calgary or mm-hmm. wherever you grew up but like i do you feel like that's missing from people or i i think they'd have a fuller life if they did have it early on like through the cub scouts and boy scouts because they mainly get out into nature and they teach you the aspects of survival and safety and uh, it is common nature has a common effect on people you got to respect it like i said because it's been around a heck of a long time before well uh, you know humanity so i do think it's missing nowadays a lot of people are fearful of it because of the animals in the wild and because safety they're just scared of the dark and they're scared of the unknown but if you just get out there and you see spend the night and hear the sounds of the animals but know that you can get through it and the sun will come up again in the morning and you'll be so proud and content that you survived a night out in the wild that it gives you confidence yeah it gives I, you confidence to go up and look forward to a, another experience and 
life is just one experience after another. Mm-hmm. There's no perfection really in life. And to think you're going to be perfect at it, it's it's delusional. You need to take each day, one moment at a time, and enjoy it. Because yesterday and tomorrow you don't own. They have nothing to do with you. So the moment and the experience is what's going to give you a memory. Yeah, I feel like it's not too late for people, if they didn't grow up like that, to start either. I think you can... It's never too late. You just It's fine to see like maybe some tourists who are on the other side of what you said that are afraid of animals that aren't afraid of them because mm-hmm. they don't know what they could do, like the people that go right up to the buffaloes in the park or mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's always pretty wild to see their kids get flipped up by the buffaloes and stuff. So you do have to have your, like, do a little bit of research about it and know what you're getting into, but I don't think it's ever too late because... I think, yeah, like you said, even looking up at, like, a a starry night sky when there's no light pollution, it's just, like, you never get that in the city. It's something that it makes you feel in the present. Oh, it's awesome to be alone at night and you look up into the stars and see millions of stars. And each star could be a solar system just like ours, and it just makes you realize how insignificant and tiny we are really there's something so much greater out there and there's so much more to learn and so much that you can do and experience so to have fear is okay because it it can keep you safe but you got to challenge yourself. you got to push the envelope and challenge yourself to uh, overcome the fears. And then you're going to gain a lot more confidence in being able to be uh, free of all the worrying that goes on and the stress. And you'll be able to accomplish a lot more, I think, in life because you'll be willing to experience a lot more. Yeah, I think... Especially when I went to Haigai, for example, the island mass in northern BC where I went. And it was during COVID, so there, there was nobody really up there anyways except locals. But mm. the place I went was super remote, no cell service. And I was alone camping with my pack raft going around the edge of the coast and everything. But like a few, three, four days away from civilization, that's like... I found you really gain a lot of confidence when you're out there doing that, but you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself to be out there and know that if something does go wrong, like what happened to me when I hung my my food in the tree, did my bear hang, and I came out in the morning and it was all torn apart. The rope and the bag was gone, so I lost my food for a number of days. But uh, just having the confidence to be out there and and struggling through that, the cold and the rain and wet, and then when you're out there all you want to do is be home and then once you finally get home I feel like you appreciate a warm shower you appreciate your bed like you you really whereas if you just go to it every day it's just what you have right you and I even find myself after being back for a while you kind of get used to it and that's why I like going back out and keep pushing myself and trying these things because if you just get complacent with like I said, comfort breeds complacency in the name of the podcast. But if you just get complacent with where you're at and comfortable all the time, you're 
you don't really you take for granted what you have and when you're out there and you have no no food or no warmth and you're sleeping on the ground and everything and it's it's nice to have that uh difference between that and when you come back Mm. it's nice to be able to come back to something and really appreciate it it's true you need to have an appreciation for nature and it needs to be a part of everybody's life i can't see a full life without incorporating nature in it it's just it's here it was here before us and we're part of it so why not have it part of our lives and not fear it do you have a uh, favorite nature we obviously live in western canada here so in the mountains and everything but do you have like your favorite one i know you don't like the snow as much and the cold so do you like i, the I liked or? the snow and cold when i was younger but now that i'm older and got some arthritis i, I tend to uh shy away from the, the cold sports but um I still enjoy a ski now and then, and I still uh, enjoy a, a mountain bike during the winter time with the fat bikes. And uh, but again, winter is part of nature, and there's so many sports that are played out there. And not to get out there, even if you're snowshoeing, or is a loss. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I know. I used to, even when I was trying to be competitive skier back in the day, and wasn't that great, but always loved being when it snowed and cold and everything. But now that I'm doing sports that are more, uh, they're easier done in the warmth, like running, cycling, swimming. Mm -hmm. I've been enjoying the summer more or the heat more. So I've been liking the, the warmer weather climates. And even when I was in like Morocco, seeing, the desert was a super cool, super cool place and like uh, snowboarding down or sandboarding down the dunes and stuff or in Mexico going through all the different landscapes, but most of them are warmth. I've, I've enjoyed the heat more, I think, as I'm getting older. I like the heat more. It To each their own, right? Some people and to your own abilities. You go do things according to your own abilities. But every, everyone needs to push themselves a little bit because if they n- never experience that, then they they don't know how good they can get. They just don't know all the possibilities. So you push, you push a little bit, just a little bit each time you go out, and you will gain confidence in yourself and your abilities, and your abilities will expand. But most of us have fears, and we're content on keeping them. But in reality, if you really want to experience and grow, you got to confront them. Yeah. So I, uh, I've always tried to push myself like out of that fearful mode. Like I can rationalize why I shouldn't do this or why it's too risky or this and or at my age I shouldn't be doing this but it's all rationalization 
whenever I push myself to do a little more, I've always felt better about it. Afterwards, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm better off now than I was before, fearing that I couldn't do it. or And you learn more about yeah. it. I think it's important to not have a, or not be afraid of a beginner's mindset too. Because I know even like when I got into skydiving, I was so, it was an idea I had for so many years I wanted to do, but it's intimidating like walking up to a drop zone where everybody knows what they're doing and you have no idea what you're doing or like take that example for anything, but Mm -hmm. just being able to accept that, yeah, I'm a beginner and I'm going to suck at this. It's going to take time. Even like the podcast, like Mm -hmm. just getting into it, still probably pretty shaky on the mic. I say, um, and like a lot, but just starting out and learning each time, time by time. And you're going to learn something when you start, when you start, you're going to learn the easy way or the hard way. You're going to learn something. So failure and success are both teachers. Just depends on how you reflect on it and how you take it and move forward with it. Yeah. Just, you will get better. The more you do it, you will get better at it. And no one is perfect. And there are, when I hear the word experts, a big red flag goes up in my head because there's no such thing as arriving. There's always a little more you can do to make it a little better next time. So when you th- you hear, oh, they're an expert and they know everything about a certain specific thing, a red flag should go up because there are no experts. And an expert would know that because... You can always do a little better next time or push yourself a little harder. And that's the wonderful thing about life. Mm-hmm. You think- never arrive. You could all, you know, it's all a journey, a continuous journey. You never arrive. And if you take that attitude, you will accomplish a lot in your lifetime and your lifetime will be filled full of memories and uh, journeys that are just incredible yeah well that's what i've always admired about you is um like of course being my dad but being the role model you are and at the age i don't know if a lot of people know your age but you're turning 75 in a couple weeks and you're still doing like you you just changed the idea of what that is in my mind like when you hear 75 you think oh you're probably getting close to an old folks home and you can't do stuff but you're here mountain biking you're swimming every day you're doing triathlons on the world stage level with people in your age group and i think it's always been inspiring to me i think that's where i get a lot of my motivation from is seeing that yeah i I try and rush a lot of stuff i do at my age but it feels like i'm getting old but even though I'm young mm-hmm. and seeing you being able to do this for like you're 50 years older than me, it's, it's inspiring to see. Well, age, the first 50 years of my life, you don't think anything about age because you think you're invincible. So you just go do, 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 do. But then when you start to realize saying, hey, you know, I'm halfway through my life, so now what? 
What do I really want to accomplish? What do I really like? And um, to me, activity is everything. It's just been everything. And I've always had dreams of doing more. And now at 75, I'm at a position where I'm semi-retired and I don't have to work as much and financially I can afford to do some of the bucket lists and the dreams I've had all my life. And sports have been a big part of those dreams and I'm trying to keep myself honest with my dreams by trying to fulfill some of them now. And I have the opportunity and I have fairly good health so why not? Why not make a fuller life and why not do more? And to say that because you're a certain age, you can't, it's just not part of my mentality. I just don't accept that, right? Age is just a number. Yeah. You're labeled, you're supposed to retire at 65, 66, and then, then what? In my eyes, it's a myth. Retirement's a myth. You just continue on with your life. You might not do so much of what, you know, financially got you to the point you are, like work. You might do a lot of more pleasurable things. And to me, doing triathlons is pleasurable. I'm not a golfer. So, uh, and I love competing. I just love competing against my fellow man and to see, uh, you know, a personal best and to see if you can improve. So competition's always been a part of my mindset and my life. And uh, that's how I was born. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, yeah, we should probably talk about that. You have... Uh now you're racing triathlons. I remember when I was younger, you got into triathlons and you're doing them in Kelowna and stuff. And mm. that was cool doing those races with you later on in life mm. that I was introduced to the sport with when I was just a young kid. But now you've qualified for age group Team Canada for your age group. And we just did a, an event in Montreal this summer. And uh, you came second in the world for the sprint distance that one was. Yeah, it so, was a sprint triathlon distance worlds so you came second in your age group of 75 79 yep and uh now you're going ahead to in three weeks to dubai for the the standard olympic distance right the super sprint distance super sprint and the event. olympic standard distance so i'm looking forward to that i've been training and actually nick my son here who uh, has helped me tremendously in the swimming part of it. He's been my coach and in the running part of it. So I am very, very thankful to you, Nick, for helping me out and get to this point because I have seen a great improvement this last few months. Yeah, of course. I, I feel like I'm just a beginner myself and all that stuff, but I have learned a lot from the guys I train with in Kelowna, Brock, Hole, and coach luke way and all that they've been definitely huge inspirations as well and wells of knowledge and brock actually just won uh today or yesterday he won his uh his uh race in 
in Pan America in Uruguay. He he came first for the U23. Oh, so. that's excellent. That's yeah, so I think he'll get some good points for the Olympics for that, hopefully. So he's on the right track anyways. He'll, I think he'll be world champ one day for sure, seeing his work ethic and everything. But Oh, I wish him strength and the best because, yeah, you've surrounded yourself with a great group of friends and athletes, right? Yeah, I think that was it was funny when I first got into triathlon again as an older after baseball and I had all the concussion issues and I just felt it wasn't fair to play mm-hmm. on the team and at not my hundred percent for me or the team. So I wanted to keep competing. So I knew you I always ran as a kid and swam as a kid and got into biking later in my life, but tried taking triathlon up. So just looked up coaches in Kelowna and found Luke and them and like just lucked out with who I surround myself with. I remember I was older by three years than Brock and them. So I showed up as probably a 21 year old or something. And they're like younger kids. They haven't fully developed yet. And I thought, Oh, I'm just going to smoke all these kids. Just like Mm -hmm. I felt super confident. And on the first track workout, I remember just getting my ass whooped. Holy, (laughs) they're just like, yeah, it's just, so much technique and even though they're younger they've been doing it so much longer and they've had a world-class coach by their side teaching them so you know I've I definitely lucked out learning all that and even before that getting into that learning a lot about all those years in baseball it might have felt like a waste because oh you're not playing anymore but I learned how to train like a professional athlete from high school I learned how to train three hours a day and maintain your eating and your good habits and be able to schedule your time to do your classes and your work and all the mental side of things and training that a lot of athletes look over and journaling and goal setting and everything like that and keeping yourself honest and injury prevention, injury rehab, everything. And that was from my baseball program, NSA and National Sport Academy in high school and coach Mickey Kawahara. But yeah, I I learned a lot from all these coaches and teammates and through the journey you've been on, even though it hasn't been that long, it's been pretty cool to learn. And now to transfer all that information and knowledge into what I'm using now, which is more of a individual sport or individual efforts. A lot of the training is lonely and the ultra stuff. There's a lot of time in the staying in your zone at the same heart rate and just being in your mindset. But it's uh, definitely good to have that solid foundation and base for everything yeah yeah training is um it is lonely it is lonely if if you're on that upper scale of eliteness right because it's hard to find someone to train with you always love to have a buddy or someone you can train with right but when you get into an eliteness you got to really search for a training partner and uh, but Kelowna has been good for you because there's a lot of uh, professional coaching out there like you've met uh, a lot of them and you've got to uh, experience uh, like Luke and uh, Balance Point mm-hmm. and he got the experience, and his wife Stacy, who's ran every ultra. She's there an is, ultra basically. elite, right? So all all that professionalism and all their experiences, and them passing it on and coaching you, and then you coaching me, it has a rippling effect, 
right, mm-hmm. in society. And I think it's all, it's, it's all um, healthy. I, I think the sporting community is healthy. A, well, I think there's that saying, you are the sum of the five people you surround yourself with the most, right? So yeah. surround yourself with good role models is everything. And even being a triathlete or an endurance athlete in Kelowna, training under Luke, um, even some of the people he, he not trained specifically but has contact with or helps with certain points of their training or helps with certain tips here or there. Like there's Corey Wallace, who's a 24-hour enduro mountain bike champ. Mm-hmm. He's like four times where you go, you have a loop mountain bike and you go around it for 24 hours. And he's been the world champ of that for, I think three or four times. I think he's back to back to back or something mm-hmm. like that. And there's a uh, Brett Fitkowski. Sorry if I'm pronounced that wrong, but uh, he's part of the CrossFit games. He came second one year in the CrossFit games, like elite, the elitist of the lead athletes. And mm-hmm. I know Luke's done help do some testing. So even just being at the track and seeing him come and do his workout and, just seeing the level that like if you always surround yourself with people who are at the bottom, then that's kind of where you get used to. But if you're, if you're in a room of these high level people, you might not be the highest, but at least you're in the room with them. Right. That's right. And seeing them perform, then you know, it's all possible. Right. Mm -hmm. So, or maybe not you're doing what they are in their sport, but you can draw, aspects that you like from what they're doing and bring it into your just pick and pull from mm-hmm. their training and bring it into yours or their mindset or and just pick their brain like it doesn't hurt to ask people are usually nice if you talk to them and mm-hmm. so yeah yeah so i feel fortunate that you were surrounded by those athletes and those coaches because I've benefited by it from you coaching me in the swimming and the running. So it's all good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also I've been super grateful to have your support and the things I do. Even my uh, Lake Okanagan swim, where I was trying to swim the whole length of Lake Okanagan. You were right there always at the start and you were there in the, in the kayak support kayak with me. And I remember we, the second time I attempted it, we did a uh, a training swim a month before the real swim, and unfortunately, the day of the real swim, it was E. coli in the water, twenty thousand parts per milliliter, and like a hundred is hundred parts per milliliter is like don't go in; it makes you sick. And it was twenty thousand. We were rinsing my mouth out between that and the smoke. You couldn't see a hundred feet ahead of you from the smoke and the fires. Yeah, it just wasn't a favorable time well, to be was, out there. Worst time of the year, but the water temperature is supposed to be nice that time of the year. And so many people say, "Well, why don't you change it?" But we have group of crew of twenty people, and there's time. Each person's coming at a certain time, and there's sponsors and boats and everything. Yeah. So you kind of had to go on that day, but. Yeah, the logistics are so great that you just can't postpone, right? Yeah, but a month before that, you and I did a practice swim from the bridge to Penticton, so half the lake, and it was just you and a kayak. You got in with me at the bridge in Kelowna, and you had a big umbrella over you, and it was just you had my cooler and food, and, and we went off, and I remember doing, I think that one was 17 or 18 hours, and it, it was the hottest day in Kona's history. It was 46 degrees, mm-hmm. and the top layer of the water was bath water, 
dead calm water and i was thinking like that we probably should have done the real one that day we like hindsight you never know you can't tell but that would have been the day to do the real one but even just you supporting me at what you were 74 years old then and you did 18 hours straight in the kayak you do an all you did an ultra in the kayak basically and Mm. supported me the whole way as well as every other one i've been on and finishing at my ride in mech or in uh across america you rode the last day with me and in my mexico ride when i came home you made a huge sign for me and so i've always really appreciated all the support you've given me well i'm happy uh to do it all nick and i get a lot out of it too just living the journeys that you in your videos that you've experienced is thrilling to me it's awesome and just thrilling and it's life exciting and uh i wouldn't have it any other way yeah yeah well i uh speaking of my america ride that was a big uh portion and inspiration for me to do that ride was you having done that ride when you were 50 years old right before you had me you uh you my mom wendy was pregnant with me and about to have me and you decided right before because you probably wouldn't be able to go when i was born you went on the ride you want to tell us about yeah i was was a little selfish Uh, i had dreamed about it It was a dream to cycling across the states right and um and then you know sometimes life gets in the way of your dreams so we he got pregnant for you and then I started thinking, oh boy, I, I'm going to be home with uh, the newborn here and uh, another year or two or three are going to go by and I'm not going to get to do part of my dream. So I was a little selfish. I told mom that uh, I, th- I think I'll go. And she was very supportive. She says, I know you got to do this and I know you've been thinking about it. So why don't you just go? So I did go, and it was it's always tougher than you think it's going to be, right? Because, that's again, nature and timing and everything else. I, I thought if I started in September in California coast and then went east, that it, you know, coming from a northern latitude, I know September is cool. It's fall and it's cool. But when I got in Southern California and San Diego and started crossing the the Chocolate Mountains and into uh, Sultan Valley into Arizona and Phoenix, it was 106 degrees. It was deathly hot. It was was so hot that I... You frying eggs on road on the road and and you'd run out of water, you couldn't drink enough and hydrate enough. So I had to to go north. I had to go up uh, along the Rocky Mountains into Colorado where it was a good twelve degrees, thirteen, fourteen degrees cooler, and then proceed east because it was just it was a mistake on my part. I just Felt sure that the fall was going to be cooler in the southern states and not experiencing that. But that's the challenge, that of a journey, right? You never know what 
it's going to throw at you and it it just makes you tougher and uh, gives you more confidence that you know you can survive yeah well i think i know uh, a quote i love is from one of my idols is uh explorer mike horn he says if you have five percent of the answers to your questions go and figure out the rest along the way because if you wait for a hundred percent you'll never go you'll never have a hundred percent of the answers like you don't know what's coming you don't know what's ahead but if you have the base things figured out just go and figure it out along the way. That's my. That's exactly my philosophy. I agree with him 100%. Just start. Just start. And you'll figure it out along the way. Yeah. I remember you telling me about uh, what state was it where you, the farmer found you or something? Oh, that was right before I got to, to Phoenix. I had uh, run out of water. I had two water bottles and I had a backpack. Uh, siphon bag and it was 106 degrees and I was definitely I was so hot that I I went unconscious I, I, I wake up and I'm on the side of the road in this hay field leaning up against a bale of hay right and I'm looking down and I see my feet and then I look over, and then I see my bike alongside the road, which was probably 40 feet away. So I had, I, I must have been semi-conscious, dehydrated and went into semi-consciousness and just stopped the bike on the side of the road, left it there, walked and got in the shade of the bale of hay and laid there. I must have been there for half an hour before I woke up and came to, right? and. I'm trying to think about what just happened to me. So I, I know I went unconscious, a semi-consciousness. And then I, I still laid there. I laid there for a good half an hour more. So I was there about an hour, an hour and a half. And then this pickup comes by, and I see him make a right turn and come down the side road, a dirt road right next to me. And... Um, he went down into a field, and I guess he had some workers down there. And then he comes back up, and he stops right next to me. And I wave to him, and he waves back, and he shouts. He says, are you okay? I'm there. Do you have any water? I says, I need water. He says, yeah, I got some water. He had a cooler in the back of his truck, and so he gave me some water. And I'm talking with him, and I say, where's the closest town here? He says, oh, it's only five five miles up the road. Uh, you know, there's motels there, and there's, and there's restaurants and everything else. So I'm there. Oh, okay, thank you. And, and then he gave me some, enough water from a water bottle. So I managed to cycle to that town and get a motel room. And I brought my bike in and I put it against the wall and I laid in, and turned the air conditioner on and laid in bed and fell asleep till the next morning. I was, I was comatose. I did not wake up till the next morning. And then when I woke up the next morning, I hydrated real well and um, uh, I had packs of electrolytes that I was using and everything else. 
And then I had breakfast, and then I decided, well, I'll give it another attempt to go and try to do another 100 miles or so. And I went to try and pull my bike because I brought it inside with me. And the bike, rim, the rims on the bike were so hot that the shag rug, it was an old long shag rug, the shag had leaned on the, the rims of the bike and it was so hot that it had melted the uh, the um, fibers to the rim of the bike. And I went to pull on the bike to, to take it out of the motel room and I was pulling on the carpet and everything else. So I had to take a knife and cut the filaments off the rug that were stuck to my bike rim because of the heat. It was so hot. Like, and I, I didn't notice it when I brought it in, and I just threw the bike in the corner. And so that was an experience that that I'll never forget. But I learned. I learned about cycling in hot weather and learned about just how to proceed to keep on, uh, you know, keep on chugging away one day at a time because you didn't know what nature was going to throw at you. There were some days that the wind was so strong that you could only do 60 miles or 45 to 60 miles that day and you were spent. And that was 11, 12-hour day of cycling. And other days, you could go, I could go 200 miles in one day if the wind was favorable. But that's nature, see? And they'll throw it at you and it doesn't care if you you got to work 10 times harder to go 100 miles or not. It just doesn't care. But it's nature and you appreciate it. In your car, when you're driving and it's windy, you don't notice the darn yeah. thing about That's it. That's one thing. With, if people don't cycle too and they're driving and... Yeah, so is, a, is it a flat route? Oh, yeah, it's flat. Yeah. It might look flat, but it could be a false flat. Just even 1% incline, just, oh, you're just grinding because you can't roll it. And if there are headwinds coming, and oh, I know even going downhill some days. If you have a headwind, wind, it's like it, it'll stop you. Like, yeah. And, yeah, so it, it gives you a deep respect for nature. But And the, the heat and the sun, how it can burn just burn you out and dehydrate you in a couple of hours. Yeah, I know it's it's nice that they stopped to give you that. I, I realized in Mexico there was I was on both sides of that when I went because it was again it was thirty five to thirty eight degrees Celsius, forty Celsius some days. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, close to hundred, but some guys there's homeless people on the side of the road that they're just begging for agua, agua. So you give them the bottle and some pour it in. Some just went straight lips the bottle mm-hmm. mid-COVID. It's kind of funny. But, um, yeah, I'm just happy to help help them out because I had spare water. So when you see those people, it's nice to have uh, give them spare water. But tons of people, when I was going across Mexico, stopped and give me cold Gatorades and cookies and food. And it's, yeah, like that's this thing I'm saying. You can't plan on that stuff. You no, know you can't. Eat. And and most people are happy. They'll ask you what you're doing. You say, oh, I'm cycling across the States. Really? Really? And then a couple of times, um, 
I'd be in a restaurant and then uh, you talk to some of them and then you're on the highway uh, trying to get your 100 miles into something and they'll go by and peep their horn because they've met you or yeah. or encourage you, right? So it's just a great, it's just a great journey just to get out. And yeah, I remember this one guy I gave water to in Mexico. I saw him, he was walking along the road and he must have been, 160k away i did 200 kilometer day that day it was like 40k into the day that i saw him ask for water i put some water in his bottle i said all right good luck man i, I remember <laughs> saying into my video like if he's going to the town i'm going it's going to be a long day for him <laughs> and then i made it to the town i was going and then got up the next day started cycling again and the same guy's walking on the road right beside where i was and he gave me a wave and i <laughs> <laughs> said he either got a ride, which I'm guessing he got a ride to the town, or he did an ultra walk overnight. So more than likely, he was just taking yeah. a ride. <laughs> That's funny, but yeah, I know you always have all these crazy stories for trips like that, and I think it is important because when people always ask me, "Oh, how do you do that?" or like, "How do you go day after day?" and I think it's it's literally that you can't. When you look at, I remember on the Baja when I was going to Mexico, I went from. Cabo all the way up to Baja to the lowest point in the country, Laguna Salada, then down to the highest point in country, Pico de Orizaba, climb the mountain, third highest point in North America, and finish in Cancun. But even going up the Baja in the first two weeks, I thought, oh, I could just stop at the top, call it a trip at the end of the Baja, and it's, it'd be nice. Like, yeah, I couldn't fathom going all the way around and having what, another two two months ahead of me on the first couple of days. You just can't think like that. You literally have to take it one day at a time just focus on today, what I have to do to get through today. And then when you look back at trip, you're like, I wonder how I did that. Like it's such a big undertaking, but if you do take it one day at a time, one step at a time, pedal at a time, stroke at a time, whatever it is, and it becomes get there. manageable and possible. Yeah. And but, then, uh, then you finally arrive at your destination and you always have it built up hours and hours, hundreds of hours of what it'll be in your head. And then uh, you get there and, it's almost always different. I remember the last day of my America trip on the 50th day, you rode to me and it was the worst day of the trip. I imagine the whole time when I was in Arizona and, or when I was in, uh, going through Nevada and everything going across, just imagining, Oh, I can't wait to roll up to our cottage and Maine, our cottage. Cause I went from San Francisco to old orchard beach, Maine. You went from, uh, in California to Virginia beach. So our, yeah. our routes were a bit different, but, I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to get to our cottage and run and jump in the water, and my family's all going to be there, and it's going to be nice and sunny. And I remember the last day it was the coldest day of the trip, pouring rain. It was yeah, freezing cold. Almost it was freezing. About rain. this time, almost Halloween time in October, freezing oh, cold. Oh, that was deadly cold. I remember <laughs> you wanted to stop for a coffee, but I just wanted to keep going. And yeah, like, well, after so many days, fifty some days, uh, you saw the, the the light at the end of the tunnel, so there was no stopping yeah. there. But yeah, I remember seeing our breath, and it was almost worse going down hills because it was the wind would cut through you. And right. I got to the water and walked into the water, and family was all there, which was awesome. But it was like a hurricane storm on the water; the waves were huge, and just just dip your feet in and get the hell out of there. Yeah. yeah. But see, then again, the elements, nature, it'll throw at you. And you have to have a tough constitute to, to be able to uh, to take it on. Like that, the lowest point when you were on your um, Mexico trip, the 
that was a fact of nature. It wasn't the sand was blowing, the wind was, oh, was blowing at that lowest point. Yeah, it was like, the worst headwinds I've ever felt. So even going, because I, I got up the Baja to a town called Mexicali. It's a big city on the border. Mm-hmm. And it's about 150 kilometers away from Tijuana to the east, right along the border. But Laguna Salada is probably uh, 30K just to the west. So I had to go up into Mexicali. 30k west and 30k back east to start heading down southeast to Cancun and when I was going west to get to Laguna Salada the headwinds are blowing at me and I was I could like I could honestly walk quicker I was going four kilometers an hour just crawling absolutely pushing as hard as I could to move forward like just so frustrating there's things blowing off trucks at me and sand and I got to Laguna Salada which is if you look at it on a map, it looks like it's a lake. Mm-hmm. It's completely dried up. It's just complete dirt. And I remember riding down in the sand, and it turned to sand. The dirt turned to sand, and the military guys were doing their testing out there, their training. They drive their trucks around and practice drifting and mm-hmm. driving the big trucks. And I was going, and I fell and cracked my hand and handlebars on the ground in there. Gringo, are you okay? You okay, <laughs> gringo? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm good, just get get going i'm fine but yeah was fine and uh get down onto the flat there but the the wind would just blow across the whole lake what it's supposed to be like air quotes but blow across it like just unscathed just come wailing in the wind so yeah. it was just it was like a sandblaster with that yeah i was trying to fly the drone and it was just going wobbly in the air and uh, yeah but Going back into Mexicali, it was like a speed boost on Mario. I didn't barely had to pedal. I just got pushed with my back. And that that's really good. It goes to show you appreciate those tailwinds when you have a headwind. But a very, even if it's a side wind, or you very rarely have a true tailwind. So it's true. It's, yeah, yeah, it always feels like a bit of a headwind. But, but that's what I mean about nature. It'll throw all kinds of things at you, right? And it doesn't care whether you're on a bike or what you're doing right it'll just test your constitute whether you can survive in it yeah yeah what was oh i remember that moment going across my america trip when i finished with everybody there my mexican one was a bit different uh i was totally alone when i finished but again those same feelings of just they wash over you i wasn't i had an idea i was going to finish at the I think it's called the Punta Cancun Lighthouse there, red and white lighthouse right at the end of the Cancun mm-hmm. where all the hotels are. And I remember making a Googler studio, like aerial video before my trip of starting in Cabo, or in Cabo going to Laguna Salada, mm-hmm. then going to Pico de Orizaba and finishing in Cancun. And then, then seeing my own videos of all those spots I went and actually finishing at that lighthouse. It was, that one was super rewarding because it was like, literally checking off boxes along the way and finally getting there. I remember just like FaceTiming you guys at the finish and just like jumping in the water and Mm. just alone, but just so like happy and proud, but ready to come home at that point. I remember being pretty, not being able to speak the language for over two months and not being able to eat anything because I'm celiac and having to just eat cans of tuna so I didn't get sick and filming every day and trying to edit on the road and everything. Mm. It just wears you out really, but it's super rewarding. What was it like finishing your trip when you finished uh, in Virginia Beach? It was, it was super rewarding because 
I dreamed about doing it, you know. It was part of going to be a bucket list. It's going to be something I was going to do. And all along the way, it was lonely, though, because I had so much time to do it. It's not like you could stop and visit the sites and everything else. If I was to do it again, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't race through it. I would go with a, a group and take the time and see the sites because I went by a lot of sites and historical sites and everything else that I'll, I'll never get a chance to go see again. Cause, but it, it was rewarding and I learned so much about cycling and so much about um, just me- mentally staying uh, in tune, staying positive because it's lonely. You got a lot of time to think while you're pedaling for 14 hours a day, right? And uh, it's not easy pedaling when you're going into a headwind. And and uh, so it's challenging and you got a lot of time to think. And But at the end of it, knowing that you persevered, it's so rewarding. It's so confidence building. And you talk to people and you cycle across the states. Yeah, anyone can do it. You just gotta so, start. Yeah, well, I met I met some people who you think you're going across, but they take yeah they take half a year a year. They just do yeah twenty thirty kilometers a day in camp, and they just take a bit, but they, yeah. yeah they do it eventually. Exactly. So and anybody with any type of abilities could do it. You just gotta plan and start. You don't have to be uh, the, the quickest racer across the the continent. Yeah. You just gotta plan and start. Yeah, I remember, especially kind of what really has progressed me into doing the things I've done, and this mindset I have of comfort breeds complacency. Is I remember you saying when I finished that America ride, oh, like that's a that's a trip of a lifetime and for most people like they you've already accomplished something that most people won't ever do and I felt super right after I felt like super confident and jacked up about that but then after it starts to sink in a bit where you think well this can't be the peak if that's a trip of a lifetime like life can't be over already at 22 years old 21 years old so like what's next that's how I started getting this idea of like the comfort of being Oh, I did it, and now I'm done. I can rest for the rest of my life. Well, no, I think you enjoy what you've done and celebrate, obviously, and and reflect on it and learn from it. But then you you start planning what's next. And uh, I know there's that saying: you're when you're on a, an adventure, you want to be home, and when you're home, you want to be on an mm-hmm. adventure. So it is like the journey, of course, but it's that rewarding process of imagining it planning it not just imagining it and making it a oh someday or one day no actually putting it on a list just put it down on a list do what you'd have to do to get to the start point on a list and then just check it off just check it off check it off check it off you're going to come into troubles but along the way of even getting to the start i say with ultra stuff or maybe not races specifically even races because you get injuries and everything but like an expedition or a project that's not planned out or set by somebody else, getting to the start of it is an ultra event itself. There's so many logistics that go into getting to the start of it. But once you're at the start of it, it's almost just like, here we go. Just let your mind go. 
Mm-hmm. It's time to go. Just trust your instincts, trust your training. Of course, you have to do all the work ahead of time to be prepared for it. But yeah, I think it's yeah. rewarding to see the whole process from start to finish. Yeah. And like, I see life as a journey and you never arrive. It's a continuous journey, right? And to be destinated, fixated, like I got to be there at this time and I got to do this much and get there and make it perfect is not realistic. So to be destinated, fixated, you're not going to enjoy the journey because you just own the moment in the journey. You don't own yesterday or tomorrow and just own the moment and the journey is accumulated moments so life is just accumulated moments so just keep the journey going yeah well i remember when i got out of high school and and everything like that you told me now you're entering the classroom of life and i think that's super true and even all this stuff like you might say oh it doesn't have monetizable tangible worth learn learning how to set up these expeditions and all this and that but you do learn so much about people about who's really in your corner supporting you what people will go through to help support you what you go through what you can go through doing that learning about discipline and scheduling your time learning about discipline and scheduling schedules for people or your meal prep your meal plan everything and then still trying to enjoy time with friends and life and everything. And I think these projects and journeys have really helped me. Like they they don't teach this stuff in school. Right. And they might think in school that it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not worthy, but I think uh, a lot of the people that you meet out in life doing these exciting things or things that many of us wish, Oh, I wish I could do that. If you listen to them talk or you, like take in some of the things that they might not have the the uh the on paper what's they're supposed to be learning what you learn in school the the way things are supposed to be they think outside the box right so mm-hmm. i think all this stuff about just yeah just starting and finding what you're passionate about and then and then finding a way oh, to yeah. work through it to the start and you're going to learn a lot along the process. You, you're you going to learn. You will learn something. If you fail or whether you yeah. succeed, you're going to learn. Exactly. And, you know, once you get out of high school and get out of university, um, it's all good. It's great. But then the real experiences start. And the world is your classroom it's unlimited and you can take what you learned in university and and uh, what your family taught you and just enhance your journey mm-hmm. because is there's unlimited possibilities if you just confront those fears and you don't have to do it perfect the first time like each moment is learning. You're learning. You're getting better. Yeah. And if you if you confront it, 
and keep doing, you will have a full life. Mm. And you'll have no regrets. I have no regrets out of what I've done. Even though it didn't, it never comes out like you expect it to mm-hmm. come out. Well, that was one thing I was going to ask is uh, I'm 24, turning 25 soon. You had me when you were 50, but when you were 19, you also had a kid, my sister Tammy. What was that like having – because you were a, a main state champion wrestler, right? Yes. And you played basketball. I remember you telling me you played basketball before three-point lines existed. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Kind of fun I did. Um, uh, yeah, back in 66, and I played semi-pro ball for a couple of years after. Uh, so, But, yeah, I, I remember just it's like seeing some of these avenues that you may have thought you were going down that once you have a kid, you obviously have responsibility. I know a lot of people, like, you can talk about – chasing your dreams all you want but at the end of the day a lot of people do have to provide for a family and all that right oh yeah so i i I did have to put my dreams on hold because i did get married young and have a child and so that is one reason now that um so um evident about filling my bucket list and doing is because i did put a, a lot of my dreams on hold and tried to be responsible. So that's a part of my motivation now. I have the time, I have the finances, and I've taken care of my responsibilities. I tried to take care of all of my responsibilities growing up. So now is the time. Mm-hmm. I, I can't wait and dream anymore without trying to fulfill some of the dreams yeah so um oh i know as well a couple years ago you had something that probably also helped put things into perspective as you had um it's called psoriatic arthritis right yes so you were it was kind of like shocking to me because you've always been like to me invincible superman to me like seeing you when i was growing up i thought like you're nothing's ever hurting you especially as you've been so young how like to how old you are you're so good shape fit and then you had this psoriatic arthritis that like debilitated you it i remember seeing you're on like two crutches it was at christmas time and just in in like clenching pain you couldn't move could barely walk from couch to couch to the bathroom and i was like in the hospital for a while and like shocking to me to see how it just it came like that, and you never know when that's going to come, right? So I'm so like blessed to see that, and go happy to see that now you're back training and you're healthy and fitter than you were before, even maybe, and you're getting ready to compete again. And I'm so, like, I'm so happy that you're there. But what did you learn going through that time? I was in, invincible. <laughs> you know, we get this grandiose thinking that we're invincible, but we're not. And good health is a gift. It really is a gift. And life is so much more enjoyable when you're healthy, right? So staying healthy should be a priority to everybody. Yeah, I think there's that saying too. It's uh, choose your heart, like being, going out and doing your workouts every day and meal prepping, like that's hard, but also being obesely overweight and struggling with health, that's hard too. Mm-hmm. So it's like choose your heart, right? 
That's correct. And uh, I like to feel, I like to feel strong. I like to feel, I have good cardio. And, uh, but it doesn't come easy. You have to discipline yourself, right? There is a price to pay. So you can either really, really relax and sit on the couch and eat and all the, the foods, or you can discipline yourself and go do exercise and do, do competitions and eat well. But it's choices. I think it's important to note that there are times to enjoy stuff too. I know you and I, when we get to places about eating, we uh, people always say it's always a spectacle to see you and I eat together because we can always eat more than anybody they've ever seen. But uh, like enjoying that, earning that, and not doing it all the time. And once you do it, being able to accept that, all right, this is the time I'm letting myself have this and then I'm getting back on track. So I remember when I was training for a triathlon, really specifically weighing all my chicken and almonds and everything. Mm. I got into like some, almost some like, uh, like eating disorder stuff where you're, you're trying to be so disciplined. And then if you have something too bad, it's all today's a write off. So just eat whatever today and start fresh tomorrow. And then day after day, it starts coming that. So it, it, it does tax you mentally and i think you do have to have a little give and take i've had to learn through that i've went through that but i think it's important to note that you you can enjoy things just do it at the right time don't always do it if you're preparing for something be disciplined and then when it's done enjoy for a bit and then get back on it yeah you treat yourself right you 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 push yourself and then you treat yourself and you push yourself and then you treat yourself but it all takes discipline and it takes choices. And um, it, it it's just what you choose, what you want out of life. So, Yeah. I think uh, one more thing I was going to ask you about. Um, when you were out of the Boy Scouts and all that, all those skills you learned, you utilized them. You were a guide, right? I was a guide in Maine because I liked the outdoors. Uh, I joined um, the guide service uh, right after I was probably one of the youngest guys ever in Maine. I was, I think, 21 when I became a guide. Um, I was out of high school and out of the Boy Scouts, and I just wanted to stay in the forest and stay in nature. So I started guiding in the area I was very familiar with that I hunted it and fished in. Um, uh, so I became a Maine State guide and I guided for a company called Jobbear's Guidance Service where they'd guide sports from all around the world, like Boston. Sports clients, right? Yeah, the yeah. guidance service calls them sports, right? Because they come into the state of Maine. They're from other states. They could be anywhere. And they buy uh, either a fishing license, either a fishing license or a hunting license. And um, they hire guides to bring them to different areas and camp uh, camps and cook for them and canoe them up the 
the best fishing spots and the best hunting spots. And I really loved being out in the wild and in nature. And that was a really growing experience for me because I meet a lot of interesting people. I met uh, a National Geographic crew that were doing an article on the Allagash River where I used to guide on because they were thinking that they were going to put a dam on the river and they were going to stop the flow of water and change the whole ecosystem up there. So they wanted to do a special. So they were up in the area where I was guiding and um, I got to meet them at one campsite and it was raining and and a miserable summer night and they had been out camping along the river for a week and they were all miserably wet and the flies were just terrible so we invited them over to stay um that national geographic crew in our cabins a log cabin on rom pond and um we really enjoyed their company and the skies opened up and the rain stopped in the next few days and they had um, a plane fly in for they could get aerial views and pictures and everything else and uh, eventually they wrote the article and it was in National Geographic I think it was in 71 or 72 about the Allagash River but that was an experience to be around them and because they had a couple writers and a couple photographers doing all the photographing and writing about the areas and then we had we had all kinds of clientele so, i remember one of the guys who said he caught his buddy's ear with the hook or something they're fly fishing and he caught his buddy's ear and hooked him or something oh yeah some of them some of them were doctors some were lawyers Justice Douglas was head of the Supreme Court in the United States. He was one client that I helped guide. Uh, Dr. Willauer, Dr. Willauer from uh, um, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. He started um, a medical center there. He was a surgeon. Um, he was a real interesting individual because he had to sit in his canoe in a chair, an old chair seat. He was, he had proper posture and he had to sit straight. He didn't want anybody else in his canoe. He just wanted one guide and him while he fly fished. And um, he wanted his fish. He went to cook his own fish that we caught. And he would, when fry him, he would steam his fish and had to put certain herbs on them. And then usually the fishing season was during uh, the spring and early summer. So there, uh, we have a, a fiddlehead, which is a, like a vegetable fern that grows. And fiddleheads are real delicious when they're still curled up. So we'd pick fiddleheads and he had to have them cooked just five minutes where they would be crispy. So he was a real particular type of guy but man did we ever enjoy his company because he had so many stories about the medical field in philadelphia and his his hospital and his um 
all his uh, accomplishments. Yeah, I'm sure you had quite a few different people that came out and lots of different stories and backgrounds. Oh, yeah. Sportsmen have all kinds of stories. The big one that got away. and the <laughs> Oh, yeah, fishing stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was, it was always a jolly time around the dinner table at night. Good camaraderie. Oh, great camaraderie. And storytelling was incredible. The stories everybody had. Yeah, I think that's always nice when you can get out there. And obviously then you didn't have social media and phones and everything. And I know on the trips I go on where I don't have access to service or anything and you're with somebody and you always feel like you connect that much deeper and it, you have these memories that last forever, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the last things I was going to ask about is your brother Bunny got drafted in back in the day when they were still drafting for the war. You also got drafted, right? But you uh, you didn't go because you were the sole breadwinner for the house for your family? Yes. I had gotten drafted uh, right out of high school, but I had gotten married in high school. I got my sweetheart pregnant, so I we got married, and we were having our first child. And then the main supporter of the family uh, was not drafted because they had to support their family. So I was 68 out of 140 that were drafted. But because I was the main supporter of my family, uh, I got nullified, so I didn't have to go to Vietnam. But my brother, Norman, who was a year older than me, was in Vietnam and uh, served in the armed forces. Do you know what you would have done if you went in? Do you know what role you would have been? I probably would have joined the, the Marine Corps. You know, it was a tough, they needed a tough few good tough men yeah and my dad was in the marine corps and uh i respected him for you know serving his country and being in the marine corps so i probably would have been in the marine corps but i would have been probably on the front lines in vietnam and more than likely i probably wouldn't have survived so getting married it was kind of a Lifesaver. Yeah, now that I look back at it, right? Because I did have friends that, you know, just four months after we graduated, they were dead. Wow. They went to uh, they went to basic training camp, and that was only two months. Um, and then they were shipped right over to Vietnam, and one of them stepped on a mine, and... Uh, one of them was, sh- three of them were shot. There was four in our graduating class. Within six months of graduating, we did. Wow. And uh, and I could have been, I could have been one of them too. So I was blessed that way in hindsight by looking back. Mm-hmm. It was stressful getting married <laughs> right in high school. And it, it was a big deal. And it was kind of embarrassing. But in hindsight, it probably saved me. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy to think that, yeah, just the way life played out. I couldn't have been here if you got drafted and had to go and all that. And right. Yeah, it's crazy to think and how one decision or one choice can affect so much down the line that you don't even know at the time. But 
No. Better thank Tam. (laughs) Yeah, better thank Tam. Yeah, and life is a gift. You know, we like to feel entitled, but there is no entitlement. It's a gift, and you got to take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's good. Thanks for sitting down with me. I appreciate it. I've always, like I've said, you've been probably the biggest inspiration in my life, so I appreciate you taking the time sitting down with me. Well, thank you, and I want to thank you for coaching me here (laughs) in these last year and helping me get some of my dreams fulfilled. Yeah, we'll go get first in Dubai. Oh, I'm going to give it my personal best. That's all (laughs) I can promise. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is uh, episode two, Comfort Breeze Complacency, uh, Gary Pelletier. Thanks. Thank you, Nick. Having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Okay. Keeping us bad. Awesome.